Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. In 2013, the American Psychiatric Association made important revisions to its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. In one important change, it replaced the diagnosis of gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria. What is gender dysphoria, and is its acceptance by the medical community a good thing? Our guest today, Dr. Ted Furton, addresses these questions in a two-part interview. He is an ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center and the author of the essay, A Critique of Gender Dysphoria in DSM-5 which can be found in the July 2017 issue of Ethics and Medics. In part one of this podcast, Dr. Furton explains the significance of replacing gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria. He then discusses the ideological motivations for this revision and the numerous moral challenges it presents. Ted, welcome to our podcast today. And I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a bit about your background, uh, specifically your education and your current work at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Yes, uh, I have a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America and uh, have been at the center for about 20 years immersed in questions of medical ethics. So I bring a philosophical background uh, to the question in front of us here today. And uh, it's important that the audience realize I'm not a psychiatrist or a medical doctor in any sort, but uh, have been immersed in this field for a couple of decades now. Currently, um, I work as uh, the director of publications at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, and I edit uh, our journal, our monthly uh, bulletin, and books as well. So lots of reading in the area of medical ethics. Sounds like a good life. <laughs> All right. So in the July 2017 edition of Ethics and Medics, you wrote an essay titled A Critique of Gender Dysphoria in DSM-5. Can you tell our audience what the Diagnostic and Statistics Statistical Manual, DSM, is, who publishes it, and why it's important for the medical field. Well, it's published by the American Psychiatric Association, and it is the guideline for all things uh, in psychiatry uh, for the practicing professional. So it's uh, essentially a list of all the different possible diagnoses of mental illnesses that uh, might come across uh, the work of a psychiatrist, and uh, also the diagnostic tools, that is, how do I, as a psychiatrist, recognize the, uh, this particular set of criteria as a particular mental illness? Does it fit uh, this category or that? Is it uh, weak or strong? Is it uh, joined with other psychiatric conditions at the same time? So it's an important tool, a reference work, really, for the whole uh, psychiatric community. Yeah, it almost sounds kind of like it's the playbook for the psychiatric community, in a sense, that this is what you refer to um, for diagnoses right, and other right. questions. Yes, exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. All right. So in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association released the fifth edition of the DSM. And in this fifth edition, the APA revised the section on gender identity disorder 
and renamed it gender dysphoria. So I'd like to talk about that for a few minutes. What was the problem that the psychiatric community was attempting to address through this revision? Well, uh, this is a, a mental state in which the patient believes that he or she is in the body of the opposite sex. So a man who believes he's a woman or a woman who believes that he is a man. Now, in the earlier DSM, DSM-4, uh, gender identity disorder was recognized as a condition that you might say it's similar to to take something more commonplace and more widely known, anorexia nervosa. So this is a condition that affects, uh, affects women, but also some men, uh, in which uh, the woman believes that she's overweight and uh, she is constantly dieting and refusing to eat in extreme cases even though she's very thin. In fact, uh, people who suffer from this mental condition oftentimes pass away as a result of not uh, taking in enough food. A, a famous case would be Karen Carpenter, who a member mm -hmm. of the, the, the Carpenter's group and uh, sang beautiful ballads and wrote lovely songs with her brother. She died at 32 from anorexia nervosa. So she had a perspective or a picture of herself, of her body, that did not match her interior mental uh, state. Uh, people who uh, suffer from this disorder uh, felt that their conception of themselves as a man or a woman was not matched by their bodies. Uh, so it was recognized at that time as a mental illness and um, treated as such. Uh, the DSM-5 changed that quite a bit. All right, so what did it change it to, or, or what's the difference between gender identity disorder and gender dysphoria? Well, in the new DSM-5, uh, gender dysphoria takes the place of gender identity disorder. All right, so I just want to and, clarify that. So gender, yeah. identity, gender identity disorder no longer exists? That's correct. It's been uh, replaced with gender dysphoria. Okay. Though there are related conditions that... Uh, are still in the manual that are connected to the earlier uh, definition. But uh, gender dysphoria is the new standard. And in the new standard, uh, this is uh, not recognized as a mental illness as such, or maybe it's better to say on the same grounds as in the previous manual, but um, as a correct assessment, that is the person, a man who thinks he's a woman, has uh, a correct assessment that he is indeed in the wrong body and the proposed remedies for this condition don't try to cure his mental state but rather relieve his feelings of mental distress caused by uh, an external world that's not ready to recognize his true identity as a woman even though he looks like a man. Now, that sounds pretty complicated, but essentially the new manual says what we're treating now is not the mental condition, but the world's reaction to this genuinely wrongly bodied individual. Uh, we're trying to help him cope with the world that finds his, his claims um, hard to believe. 
Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. It, it seems like a, just a, a very radically different understanding of approaching people who have this, whether it's a gender a gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria. It, it just seems like such a radical shift was made. It is a very radical shift, complete change, and presumably that means that all of the previous advice, previous advice given in DSM four and earlier. I'm not sure about the earlier manuals, but. Uh, I'm sure it was all the same. Uh, if it was covered at all, it would be the same as in DSM-5. All of that was incorrect, apparently. It was bad advice. It's now been radically revised. Again, to go back to uh, anorexia nervosa, it would be a bit like saying, uh, for someone like Karen Carpenter, uh, the correct way to help her would be to uh, help her fend off complaints from her family and friends that she really is uh, thin um, and to say to them, you know, you really have to accept uh, Ms. Carpenter's view of herself, and we're going to, I guess, not provide her with food because uh, this is how she, she actually understands how she is mentally. Uh, her own picture of herself is correct. Which logically doesn't seem to get at the underlying problem. Yeah, I and mean, they're not trying to get at the underlying problem in DSM-5. It's not a, an attempt to cure this condition which is now recognized as a, tr a valid truth claim, I guess speak in terms of logic here, uh, that the patient is making about his or her condition. If he says he's a woman, he is indeed a woman, and we need to respect that. And the same for her, if she says she's a man, we need to respect that and realize that, as they say, gender is not... Um, really a biological phenomenon, it is a mental state, and our self-perception takes precedence over the body. This is said to be true, uh, Joe, even though uh, you know, every cell in the body is marked male or female, you know, XX or XY, and um, you, know, you, you can call a man a woman as much as you want, and you can dress him in a different way, and the fact remains that his genes tell a very different story. Yeah. We'll come back to this question about gender fluidity a little bit later on, but I was wondering if you could comment on the rationales for revisions to DSM-5. Well, here, I mean, I, it's difficult to, to say um, in a simple manner, I mean, you could go very wide range and look at the broader culture, or you can go more close range. Uh, the American Psychological Association uh, offers a theory. Now, the, the DSM-5 is, is just a, a manual, so it doesn't go into the theoretical background, but the American Psychological Association does give a much broader explanation for their acceptance of the same thing. So both the psychiatrists and the psychologists are both um, accepting of transgenderism, let's call it. Uh, they say that, again, previous science has all been incorrect, and uh, male and female are not distinct types, but rather they're found along a continuum. So you have some people who are 99% uh, male, some people who are 99% female, and then as you go towards the middle between these two extremes, you've got um, men who are, I guess, 75% men, you've got 50% men, 
you've got 25% men and 75% women. Uh, so there's a, a range of uh, individuals uh, along a continuum. And that's, that's what they're claiming to be theoretically the case. So this is a theoretical argument that's being made, though it's hard to see how it comports with biology, uh, since the only cases we have of people in the middle condition at the biological level are those who are called intersex. Now, intersex persons are those who have misformed genitalia. Uh, typically, they show as XX or XY, as women or men, uh, but for whatever reason, hormonal, etc., cetera, uh, they don't properly form the genitalia or other sex characteristics. So these are people who are very rare uh, and who need uh, surgical procedures. And of course, it's perfectly appropriate mm -hmm. because the physician is trying to correct what nature was not able to achieve. So that's, that's what we have at the biological level. But we're not talking about intersex persons when we talk about those who suffer from gender dysphoria. People who suffer from this are perfectly normal in their physiognomy. They're perfectly normal males, perfectly normal females. They simply think that they're members of the opposite sex. So the justification is uh, sex as a continuum, even though it's hard to see how the world at large, nature, can confirm that view. I mean, the division between the sexes is obvious. Like 99.1% of all human beings are definitely male or female. Those that are intersex uh, should have been one way or the other, but are malformed. Uh, but, you know, the claim that one is in the wrong body is a very different uh, claim. And it used to be, as they say, considered a mental illness. Wow, there's a lot of information there. I, I, I guess just to be clear on all this, does, does DSM-5 consider gender dysphoria and this gender fluidity to be normal and healthy? I believe it does. Now, they're a bit um, reticent on this. Unlike the American Psychological Association, it very definitely says, yes, this is perfectly normal and healthy. And, and the assumption is there as well in the DSM-5 produced mm -hmm. by the American Psychiatric Association. So I think the answer to that has to be yes. With all of this in mind, with everything you've said in mind so far, what are the principal moral concerns that you see with gender dysphoria? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind to, to me as an ethicist is young people, and I'm talking about children, uh, and the possibility that their own confusion, which is often natural for young people, mm -hmm. about their gender roles uh, could lead their parents uh, at the encouragement of psychiatrists and others to get them going along the path of undergoing a, a sex change, which obviously is a very radical step. Uh, it begins with hormonal treatments, uh, with the uh, you know female hormones if you're a man and vice versa if you're a woman, uh, and then proceeding to uh, the removal of the genitals and a fabrication of uh, those that look like the opposite sex. Of course, this only results in sterility. Again, you, you can't actually make a man into a woman or a woman into a man. That's a, a biological impossibility, at least by current 
uh, surgical standards, whether it would ever be possible is an interesting question. But even there, you still have every other cell in the body uh, marked as male or, or female. So there's a lot of push um, in, uh, I don't know, the political and ideological areas of um, American uh, public life to encourage young people to question their sexual identity and to explore the possibility that they might in fact be the opposite sex. Uh, and really, a young person is not in a position to make that kind of judgment, and adults and physicians should be discouraging any kind of a radical step like that because it is so completely life-altering and and harmful, really. I mean, this is the sad thing about it, Joe. It's You've got um, a movement within the medical community, which should be based on objective information, facts, and science, which is encouraging people to do things which are really self-destructive, uh, uh, physically uh, damaging. So that's the, that's the great tragedy of it, and that's the great moral problem here, that, that uh, people are being encouraged to hurt themselves in the interest of what I think has to be called a kind of pseudoscience. So Ted, I'd like to just kind of jump off on what you just said. And in some of my own reading and research, uh, I've come across those who will question where the medical community is going in terms of, in terms of encouraging this gender identity search. And one of the things that they, uh, that these opponents will say is that, you know, you're talking about children who are in adolescence and adolescence I remember my own adolescence. It was a time of, you know, you're, there, there's a lot of confusion and you're trying to figure course, things out. Yes, so it's a yes. very... We all a, go through that, yes. And another thing they said was that even in children who do express um, some confusion about their, about their identity as they're going through adolescence, um, the numbers are very high. I, I want to say it's, uh, it was somewhere in the upper 80% for females and 90 plus percent for males that they, these children essentially grow out of it for back, for lack exactly. of a better term. Yeah. And I was wondering, mm -hmm. can you, can you comment on, on that at all? Uh, your statistics are correct. Most of the young people, <laughs> who, uh, they have these feelings and then, you know, they're just exploring, you know, they, they say, here, I'm, I'm a man. And, it's natural for you to just to suppose what it would be like to be the member of the opposite sex. If one starts to have serious thoughts that maybe I should have been that way, most people grow out of it. And uh, those that don't, I mean, they're the interesting case here for the DSM-5. I mean, don't they have a psychological disorder? I mean, that's the way it used to be presented in the psychiatric literature. So yes, most people grow out of it, and the remainder, um, are they normal or are they uh, suffering from an illness? Great questions. You said at the beginning of the interview that you are not a medical professional, that you're a philosopher. And so question is, how does a philosopher such as you approach this topic? Well, uh, one of the main avenues for all of the analysis done here at the National Catholic Bioethics Center is the natural law tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to kind of give a couple of comments about that uh, in brief, uh, we view nature as created by God, 
and has as having in it objective goods. Uh, so there's a teleological order that is nature tends to move toward the good or to seek the good for itself. It, each and everything within nature, we all desire to possess the good. And uh, when we look to nature for moral guidance, we turn to those goods and say, you know, which one should I be pursuing? And, you know, how do they pertain to me as as a human being? Or, you know, the same for even the, the rest of the of the, um, the created world. So, for example, sex is a very, very important end for the whole of nature. I mean, plants, animals, and human beings spend an enormous amount of energy uh, geared toward the propagation of the species. It's absolutely critical for the survival of future generations. So in the natural order, we have a division uh, into male and female sides, which cuts through the whole of the, the living world, plants, animals, and human beings. And it's, it's a very definite and purposeful division. So when we look at nature, we see it telling us that there are two distinct sexes and, uh, you know, we need to remain true to the, our own particular sex uh, as it's manifested in our bodies. The other, the other main element here is the body-soul union, which is a very key teaching in Western philosophy. And so we've got a psychological dimension in human beings. We, we have, are living creatures with a intellect and will, and we have a bodily dimension as well. And these two are completely uh, joined in a substantial union. So uh, the male uh, psyche is in a male body, and the female psyche is in a female body. And... Uh, the two need to be respected uh, in their identity. So those are some of the key, more, more broader philosophical principles that uh, govern this kind of analysis from the philosophical or larger perspective. So these philosophical perspectives have been, we've known about these for, for thousands of years, but now today, all of a sudden, within the last you know, 10, 15 years or so, all of a sudden there's a complete rethinking of, of this and actually maybe a complete repudiation of this within the psychiatric community. Something doesn't seem to add up there. Well, you know, it used to be uh, that science was, uh, it held out the ideal of objectivity, the study of nature as it actually is not as it has been reshaped by us and by our own desires and thoughts and wishes. Um, and for the most part, the, uh, the loss of objectivity and the attack on reason uh, in this postmodern era has afflicted the humanities. It hasn't hit the sciences too much, although it's starting to do so now, uh, but in medicine uh, in particular is more vulnerable to this confusion because it is a practical discipline and it's, uh, you know, it encounters the ideological influences of the wider society. So um, I think uh, the, the discouraging thing is that the immunity that science used to have from this kind of uh, relativistic and subjectivist meddling uh, seems to be um, no longer the case. It seems to be starting to be affected by it. 
which is unfortunate because it will have real-world practical implications. Well, your response leads me right into my next question, uh, which is, in the article, you state that, quote, one has reason to think that the American Psychiatric Association's change in DSM-5 was motivated by sociological and ideological considerations rather than an analysis of relevant medical and, epi and epidemiological facts, unquote. Yeah. Question, what specific social and ideological considerations do you believe were behind the DSM-5 revision? Well, let me, let me say something that's not in that, that uh, essay, uh, but is very in interesting. Uh, the, the statement on uh, transgenderism and uh, sex reassignment surgery was drafted by uh, a task force composed of gay, lesbian, and bisexual psychiatrists. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you are somebody, uh, you know, a truly objective scientist who's saying, okay, but somebody has asked us about this gender identity disorder. They think it might not be correct. They want us to rename it. Let me assign this to a group that I can be sure will be completely <laughs> objective about this. I've got it. It's the gay, lesbian, and bisexual psychiatrist. They will give me a, a correct analysis. I mean, that's the first thing that, that should jump out at us. The other thing is um, when you look at the studies that have been done on individuals who have undergone sex reassignment surgery, the results have not been good. Uh, they, the people who um, have undergone the surgical change remain pretty much as they were before, uh, generally unhappy with their lot, but also are much more prone to uh, mortality, including suicide. I think the most dramatic statistic is a fourfold increase in suicide and a 20% uh, increase in successful suicide. So not only are they killing themselves more than the general population, but they're also much better at it. They make sure they get it done, which is very uh, frightening and distressing. So there's a, there's a whole range of, of pathologies that are connected to uh, these individuals before and after the surgeries, and they, they are not diminished by the surgeries. Hmm. And yet here we as a society, we, uh, you know, we, we, we claim Bruce Jenner slash Caitlyn Jenner as, as a hero, and yet the realities are, as you say, with, um, with the statistics that we have. Something seems wrong with that. Yeah, no, it's it's a much broader um, sociological problem. We live in very um, strange times. I mean, it's very hard to figure out why this is happening uh, in you know one of the most advanced countries in the world, where we have so many advantages and we've had such a s strong and successful scientific history, uh, made so much progress in so many era areas, and yet this sort of thing happens to us and. And the best minds, I mean, the, the most noteworthy professional organizations suddenly come out with pronouncements which don't really conform to common sense. It is baffling. It is. Has the American Psychiatric Association offered any scientific evidence to support the revision in DSM-5? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, 
articles in the literature, and they're, of course, couched in you know, very abstract uh, theoretical language. But the only truly theoretical explanation that I've seen for it is, is this gender continuum. There's, there's also um, some talk about, well, certain parts of the brain are larger in women than in men, and some men have this part so larger than it should be in their brain, and maybe that's a sign of this, maybe that's a sign of that. There's a lot of speculation. You know, this could be true, that could be true, but in terms of hard, concrete evidence, there's really very little to nothing uh, out there to, to show that this theory should be taken seriously. Hmm. This concludes part one of our podcast. In part two, Dr. Furton more fully addresses the ideology and challenges of transgenderism before offering a Catholic response to this problematic interpretation of gender identity. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, and join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.